historical, ideational approach to Tanakh. It's something that those of us that have gone through the whole yeshiva system have never gotten. We want to understand what Tanakh is all about. Growing out of Tanakh itself will be, growing out of Tanakh itself will be ideas and thoughts. But to understand those ideas and thoughts, you need the historical framework. No idea exists in a vacuum. To understand any idea, at any point in time, you need to have the historical context. If an idea was born yesterday or 2,000 years ago, it's going to change our understanding of that particular idea. And ideas are critically important. Ideas are what motivate the world. Ideas are what push history forward. People are not always aware of how powerful ideas are. If you were to think of one of the most important ideas of the 20th century, let's say, what would you say? Democracy. Okay, good. Democracy is an, is an extraordinarily important, powerful idea that has literally changed the face of the earth. Literally changed the face of the earth. There are millions Hundreds of millions of people have been changed by the idea of democracy. Another example. Communism. Okay, the flip side would be communism. Which, of course, again, because of communism, literally hundreds of millions of people have been subject to all kinds of tortures and afflictions. Or you might think about any Freudian ideas. How we see the human being has changed because of Freud's ideas. So wherever you look, you see ideas really powering history forward. Ideas are incredibly important. Our Tanakh, our Bible, contains multiples of ideas, values, ideals. Ideas, ideals, and values. To properly understand the ideas, ideals, and values of this book, you need the historical framework. Right? That's what we've been talking about. When we look at our sheets, or if you look at the Tanakh in front of you, right, you see, of course, five books of Moses, and we haven't gotten to that yet, because that's the most powerful source of ideas, ideals, and values. You look at the opening pages of the Bible itself, which can be found on page, I guess you look at the very opening page of VI. I. V-I-I. V-I-I. Second page in the book. That's Vi with a capital I. Vi. Why look at Vi? That's why the Roman Empire fell. <laughs> fell because nobody could, could tell what the numbers meant. Come at you know what they could tell what each other meant. V-X. We told you that. So you look at the first section over here. You have the ideas, ideals, and values in the five books of Moses. That has to be analyzed very carefully. Very, very carefully. Those ideas are the most profound and the most motivating in all of the history of the world. And of course, as we first studied this, I gave you some examples of this. I gave an example such as Stanley O'Keefe, every human being is created in the divine image. That's the most important idea in the history of the world. We're not getting credit for it, but that idea means that every human being is unique, irreplaceable, and of infinite value. Every human being. That's the most important idea in the history of the world. Second to that, you might say, is monotheism. God is one. God's unique. God's alone. God is absolutely free. Now, when this idea was introduced in the historical context of a pagan world, going back 4,000 years ago, it was a revolutionary, radical idea. Idea nobody could believe. Nobody could comprehend. One man, one man came up with this idea, Abraham, presumably, and he, as a result of announcing this idea to the world, though the world resisted it for hundreds and if not thousands of years. But today it's commonplace. Who's not a monotheist? We have, I told you, I have a few pagan friends here and there. But besides the pagans that I have and my, my friends, everybody else is a monotheist. So they think they are at least. So that's a very powerful idea that has changed the face of the world. Ideas are very powerful. And remember now, we have a goal over here. Our goal over here is to change the world. What do we call that? Tikkun olam. Change the world. So we are now providing a literary, historical, ideational, word ideational, ideas, an ideational account of the 
values in this book. We want to provide all of that. Now we had seen already that in the Nibi'im, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of the books of the prophets, there were 19 books of the prophets, we had gone over some of their ideas, ideals, and values. I don't want to give you too many examples of this. Right? 100%. Okay. One example. I'm sorry? The truth is we need a review. Oh, we need a review. Well, I'm not giving it to you. No. MP3. It's MP3. Somebody heard about it. They want to get the MP3 tape. I don't know. I don't work on it. That's your website. That's your website, right. Is that the website? Yeah. Oh, it is? We did? Okay, that. We may be, we may be in trouble. Oh, we, I don't think we're in trouble. Is that anything? No. Yeah. 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 Keep going. Yeah. 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 Okay. Make sure. We'll defend you if anything. Okay. So, <laughs> just say I didn't say it. Yeah. Uh, anything that makes me question that he didn't say it. I was then he didn't say it. I do this all the time. Just keep that in mind. Okay. okay. We gotta erase that now. <laughs> it's more complicated. I didn't, say it. I didn't say that either. Right. Very good. So here we have the 19 books, and over here again. Here you divide, we try to conceptualize these books by making it easy to, to take note of. The first four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, is a historical framework from the year 1240 before the Common Era, all the way to the end of the King, which is 560 before the Common Era. Now, what's an example of an idea in those four books? Well, you have the idea, number one, of Kibusha Adas. The land of Israel is holy, you must conquer the land. God tells Joshua, go in and conquer that land. Of course, if somebody does not want to accept your sovereignty, then you have to root them out. Pagans, Kena'anim, on the one hand. On the other hand, if they want to accept your sovereignty and become civilized human beings, which means abiding by seven Noahide commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, those seven Noahide commandments, if in fact they accept those seven Noahide commandments, then what do we say? They have to be treated with dignity and respect, they have to be allowed to live, and take care of them, and support them, give them charity, and take care of them when they pass away, and you have to visit them. They're called a ger toshav. You have to give them everything. Treat them with dignity and respect, because they are civilized human beings. If, however, they refuse to be civilized human beings, and they choose to remain Nazis, let's say, or a good pagan example in the 20th century, at that point, then you have to root them out. You cannot allow the threat of a pagan in your midst. Of course, the Jews, in fact, did allow pagans in the midst, and they corrupted us. For the next thousand years, let's say from the land by 1250, till the Horban, which is 586, for 500 years, they corrupted us. And you read the biblical record, it's history of our falling prey to the corruption of paganism and therefore immorality. That's going to be explored, of course, at the beginning of the next session. When we talk about the source, we're going to focus on that idea. What is paganism and why was it so seductive? Why did it achieve such great heights amongst the people of Israel? That's later on. So here we see that idea of Kibusha Aditz in Joshua. We see the idea of covenant in Joshua 24. Book of, Sam, Book of Judges tells me about what happens when each man follows his own rule of law. Each man following what he wants. I determine morality. Anarchy. Anarchy. Exactly. A good example of that would be Iraq today. How did it happen? All of a sudden you have the looters. All of a sudden you have people walking in and taking. It's amazing. America did not conceive of that possible result. We conquer the land, we expect them to be civilized. All of a sudden, all heck breaks loose, and what happens? I don't want to say that. And what happens over here? You walk in, and you take it, whatever you choose. How did they not? It sounds ridiculous. That's a good question. How did America not foresee that? I mean, it happens all the, all the time here. They, they assume that there was not Harlem. <laughs> they assume that. No, no, that's what they assume. They weren't ready. Right, you're right. I mean, we know what it's like, because during, the, some of you may not remember this, but in, what was it, late 70s, you had Watts in L.A., you had a blackout over here in 63, 64, and that was, it was looting. So, again, instead of, so you wonder, you wonder it, I don't know, is it human nature? You and I wouldn't loot over here. Certain strata society would loot. Now, the question is, why do the people in Iraq start to loot? What psychological social forces... But it was anarchy. But so we... Sorry? Okay. It seems obvious to me that that's 
Yeah, that's what would happen. The, the, after the removal of all that repression of 20, how many? 30 years, over 30 years, years of, sure. Of repression, I think, be, that's how I would expect them to react. You would think, what did you think? They were going to all line up and say, okay, yeah. We didn't ask, no, no, no. A, a, no, a we'd expect, no. We'd ex- what would you expect? What did what yeah, you expect? The police I would expect in New York exactly home. what happened. You can have the same thing here. Not in all, not in all neighborhoods. I think you would. No. no. Okay. Deal, New Jersey. Deal with a free civilized place. Brooklyn, I don't know. But in Deal, exactly. In Deal, New Jersey, I believe all the people went home. In Brooklyn, I know exactly what would go on. What would go on? People from the bad neighborhoods. I brought, the bad neighborhoods. I, I, I brought a boat to, to a yeah. in Brooklyn last year. You brought a? You brought a? I, I brought my boat to Brooklyn. Our boat. Yeah. Our boat. <laughs> we're going to... So I brought it in the marina. The captain And I said, you know, you have to put some stuff on the boat. Should you leave it? Should I leave my stuff yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take it home with me. So one day I said, I'm going to do an experiment. I brought my net. It's just like you. I brought my net and I left it on the dock between my boat and the next guy's boat. And I left it there, and I did it a few times. And sure enough, somebody picked it up and walked I away. can't believe and I, it. And I said, the attitude of the person, of the average person in Brooklyn, it's amazing. is that if it's not nailed down, it's, astounding. it's, free, it's free game, and they just took it. In deals, that never would happen. That's an amazing point. Okay, good. Good, so education does work. The ideas of United Steel does, in fact, work in certain neighborhoods. Okay, so that's an interesting question. That's anarchy. Ishai Shadabay said that the book of Shoftim talks, talks about, and we understand it very well from that context. We read the historical period of time called the Shoftim, which is from around the end of Yoshua's life, end of Yoshua's life, 1200, for about till the year 1020 before the coming year, when King Saul comes to the fore. We see anarchy. Do whatever you want. And we see the famous closing story of the book of Shoftim is known as Excellent, good. A woman is raped. Gang raped. The pagans would easily do that. All night, whatever you choose. What's a woman? Gang raped. And the shock is that that happened to the Jewish community. So what did the Jews do about that? Well, the man did what? He took the woman... His concubine chopped her up to depart to all of Israel and said, this is what Jews did, now do something. They gathered together. It's an incredible last two chapters of, of Shoftim. It has to be studied or made into a movie. One or the other, it's a great movie. It really is. It's so, once again, it so captures the imagination because justice over here cannot be denied. But the people of the broader tribe of Benjamin, look how complex this is, says to these people, we're not giving up the evil people. We're not doing it. We're not giving them up. But they're evil. They're in your midst. We have to root them out. We're not doing it. They're our friends and our colleagues. So evil spreads. Look how evil spreads over here. And then we do war against them. We do war against them and we kill tens of thousands of those people who are harboring the other evil people. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. Exactly it. That's human nature. Nothing changes. That is the astounding point. So the book of Shortin ends with this. David? I'm just wondering about that story. I don't know if you want to get hung up on no, that. No, no, I don't. I don't. I don't. No, I'm hung up on that. In many ways. So those are the first four books of the, bar, of the book of Nevi'im, right? Those are the first four books. Joshua, Samuel. Joshua judges Samuel. Samuel talks about leadership. Now we know we have a problem. The problem is to give up. We need leadership. So what do we do? We tried a priest, didn't work out. Eliak win. We tried a different kind of a judge, she didn't work out. It's children were corrupt. We're corrupt. We tried all that we could try, didn't work out. Finally need a king. King Saul, the year one thousand and twenty, the year one thousand, he rules. Does he succeed? No, he fails. What did he miss in, in failing? What did he happen? Why did he fail? Three elements of leadership that the book of Samuel tells us. One he must be energetic, dynamic, and charismatic. You must lead as a person of Israel. You're the king. And when he tells Shemuel, thank you, people had compassion on the sheep of Amalek, what does Shemuel say? You are the head of the Jewish people. You must act in the right fashion. You can't allow the people to decide what's the right policy, what's the ethical policy, what God wants. So, King Saul is denied the throne because he failed. He let the people lead. Le- what is leadership really all about? It's a very important question. There is to think about. 
This community is led. There are leaders to this community. But don't they have to listen to their people? To Good. So you need some... Get this to the people. So you're right. You need to have an interaction between those who lead and those who are led. That makes a good leader because yeah. it leads the people towards the direction they want to go, but they don't know how to get But it. you also have to shape and fashion those people. Right. Because you can't do whatever. Don't, doesn't the leader have to listen to the people? So that interaction, that dialectic between the he who leads and those who are led is a critical tension throughout all of human history. When America in the 19, let's say, uh, 20s or 30s had an isolationist policy. We're not getting involved in Europe, too bad, World War II, we're not getting involved. It was a strong isolationism in America. That was the wrong policy. Now what's amazing is the question the historical question, did Roosevelt know about Pearl Harbor and really kept it quiet, which is some of the undercurrent over here, not been proven one way or the other, nobody knows, but it's spoken about, because he had to get America into the war. What do you do? <coughs> Good question. That's what a president leader has to evaluate. He evaluated and said, at what price? George Bush had to get America behind, so at what price? You have to evaluate. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's the question the lead has to determine. Once determined, he determined, astoundingly so, interestingly so, because what kind of man was he? Churchill was the great leaders of our time. Had the same exact challenge. And eventually, in his case, it was obvious, Churchill's case. That was, that was, that was no brainer. Roosevelt was a brainer, because we are protected. We are really self-insecure in the 1940s. Who's going to attack America? We're surrounded by... Nobody can come across the... They knew about the Japanese threat, but they never thought that right. they would come across the ocean. They never thought it would have been hit that way because of Pearl Harbor and all that. Knowing about Pearl Harbor or knowing that we could have gotten an attack is two different things. Correct. Okay, I agree. I agree. I absolutely agree. He knew agree. the level of the attack. He wouldn't have said yes, but he knew there was a big threat that they didn't go to the threat versus like Israel going to he the other before wasn't. they came to us right. in 67. No, I agree. So that's the, at the what price right. story. Right. So I'm only making the point that a leader has to know how to energize and mobilize his community as small, as broad as it may be, if it's even 280 million people, and how to get them behind his effort. That's a leader. So Shaul failed in that, in that sense. He failed. So then now we have David. David takes us one notch further. And David really understood that leadership meant energetic, dynamic, charismatic, powerful steps forward in leading. On the other hand, a leader of Jews must know he is simply a humble servant of God. So you are. Those are opposing emotions. You're powerful, energetic. On the other hand, you turn around the other day, one half an hour later. You spoke to the people, you energized them, but who really are you? You're Ebed Hashem. You're a servant of God. So those are two of the characteristics that every successful leader must have. Humility, and yet charisma, energy, and dynamism. Yes? A leader could also fool the people by saying he's doing uh, things in the name of God. Absolutely. Not even God spoke to him. Good. That's excellent. So, so therefore, therefore, because of that point, you need to have an educated consumer or people that's able to point out, because the leader must be watched over. Because in fact, the history of Jewish leadership from that point on was downhill. It was downhill. Often the kings of Israel led the people into idolatry, ironically enough. King Ahab's wife was Phoenician. And he led the people into idolatry. So that's correct. Wait, one, one more point. So therefore you need dynamic, charismatic leadership. You also need, as well, humility. Because it's not you, it's God who rules, not you. You're only an instrument of rule. You're nothing more than a uh, screwdriver. Isn't, You're a hammer. Isn't the, the kingship and not be the model of, of not how to be a leader? The ideal is no, no. The ideal is to have a Melech Mashiach, somebody who is energetic and charismatic, somebody who's humble, and somebody who knows how to train the next generation. Hamshaka. That's what we said, because we know he's only to live a certain amount of time. He has to train his child, his son, to be the next leader. But you're right that the history of kingship in Israel, other than let's say David, and that's also something we have to discuss, not this pretty time, but David has discussed. That after that is downhill. Solomon and beyond is downhill. Even before that, they don't want. There is not supposed to be. 
No. It's not the, the prescription. No, because like no, that's an interesting machloket. It's an interesting discussion in Sanhedrin where one of the, half the schools of thought we should have a king. It says in Devarim, Som Alecha Melech. On the other hand, they say it's Reshut. Some say it's Hova, you must have a king. Some say it's only Reshut, which means voluntary. If you want, you can have. If you feel need, you can have. Otherwise, you should not. So there's two positions on that. Two perspectives. They, when, when they ask for a king, it's a... It's a uh, Shemuel says, you know, what am I going to do? Right. So Shemuel obviously said, you shouldn't have a king. God's your king. Don't use human agents because human beings will corrupt. Exactly. Shemuel was, and he was correct about that. On the other, what's the other hand? What's the other side of that coin? On the other hand, the fear is that without a leader, we're anarch. We're anarch. Right. So, that was the way it worked. Correct. Correct. Yes. So but this. Devarim, Hashem says, when you have a king, this is going to happen. This right. We try to limit it. So again, one takes this Sukim yeah, and the rabbi. Example for saying we want a king. Because you didn't. Perhaps you didn't need it at that point. Again, this issue should be argued, discussed in political philosophy of the Torah and of the Talmud. What is the political philosophy? They should have a king. Should have a king. That has to be discussed more at length. Right. Okay, let's go on a little more quickly. So who we have. Samuel about leadership. We have the book of Kings, the failure of leadership. Correct the point. Then we have all the prophets. Now, besides the social history of the first four books of the 19 of the prophetic books, you have the rest of these books are all what I call rabbinic sermons. From the period, let's say, Amos 750, before the common era, all the way to Malachi, the last prophet of 450, that 500 year period more or less, Right? More or less, let's say maybe 400 year period, you might say, is the rabbinic, prophetic reaction to what was going on in those first four books. Or first, let's say, from the book of Kings, or let's say, end of Samuels and Kings. Right? It's not, I don't want to go through the exact demarcations, but let's say, for convenience sake, the book of Kings is when Amor starts prophesying. We explain why he started prophesying. We explain <clears throat> how he expressed his anger at the people. Common idea. I'll raise an issue right now that Amos refers us to. Do you think that every person has the right to make any kind of wedding that he wants? How many of you think, yes? Ladies, this is an important question to you. Yes. Yes, yes, no matter what, you want to spend a million dollars on the wedding, you can. Let's go back to Lebes weddings. Yeah. Okay, so you think let's go back to Lebes weddings. You don't like this guy, no. don't, 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 don't forget it anymore. Right. Does, does anybody argue with that? Do you have carte blanche? No. Oh, so Rabbi, so we should... Okay, good. So we have two schools of thought. One school of thought says that you should have unrestricted weddings no matter what, even though it causes competition between people. Right? You had a million, I need a million one. Sorry. And second of all, because there are people starving. Well, would they give that money to starving people anyway? No. Okay. Maybe a little bit. What if you were giving them what they maximum of 20% of the cost? Okay, even then. If so, well, one would argue that even giving a max of 12 cents to the cost, if you're Bill Gates, you're worth 40 billion. So let's say, let's say, let's um, say, $8 billion to Siddhartha, right? You get $8 billion and you still have $32 billion left, right? So comes a poor man knocking on the door and says, I'm dying of salvation. He is dying of salvation. Is Bill Gates obligated to save him? Yes. Absolutely, yes. Right? You get to go because he, as long as you have it, he's starving, you should give. So those are two issues. One is causing social dislocation. Even though you have a right, you, you earn the money, your million dollars, spend anything you want, on one hand. The other hand, you have social dislocation because of that, because now I'm going to compete with you. Number two, you have hungry people, people need medicine, they can't afford the medicine. That's the other side of that. So those are two schools of thought. Absolute right to have your own wedding. The other side says, no. We could, the rabbis, the leaders of the community, can restrict your wedding. Meaning, if you have a wedding in the Waldorf, the rabbis are not coming. If you have a wedding when you had $40,000 of flowers, which I've experienced in our shul multiple times, I'm not coming to your wedding. Right? You have over 400 people, I'm not coming to your wedding. None of them have a coming. It's a rabbinic decree. It should be a rabbinic decree. should be a rabbinic decree. Um, well, we, you believe you have right, that. Right, right. right. You, you're on that side of the coin. They have right? that in communities. Correct. And the Hasidic and the community has it, and in Mati they have it, where you're limited. Because it was getting to be outlandish. So now here's my point. Amos speaks about social injustice 
judicial injustice and also speaks about luxuriating people who sleep on beds of ivory and pour from Damascus, he quotes all that, when people are starving outside. All one and the same. So, so okay, correct. So I'm also to be a Harveyite. He agrees with Harvey at this point, right? He does not want to see hungry people. I'm also say that's his idea. So one of the ideas one might say over here, you know, and how do you limit that? So what do I have? I have to have a blood sweating. What are my options over here? That's a good question. What are my options? What should we do about this issue? How do we solve this as a problem? Is the question that we're asking. Okay, so that's Amos's idea about it. It's one idea in Amos, the first literary prophet they was upset about. Upset about paganism, but more so about judicial injustice and social injustice. Which is an interesting question. What so Harvey, Harvey was first? Sorry. No, okay. Can you say literary prophet again? Sorry? Literary prophet. Okay, literary prophet is those prophets whose words were written down first. They're known as the classical or literary prophets. Their words were done. Natan Hanavi has no written works. Eliyahu Hanavi has no written works. Somebody else wrote it down for them, you say? No, Natan and Eliyahu, we have no, they, they didn't, we have nothing to... Wait, 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 another question. But Amos is the first, in 750, the first literary prophet. And four or five sessions ago, we spoke about why Amos was the first literary prophet. Not to review that right now. Okay, now, my next point is that here you have all these books of the prophets. You have another book, let's say, Yoel. Yoel, page, um, it's page two over here, right? What does Yoel tell me about? We made the point that each of these books has ideas, ideals, and values. Welcome, good to see you. Has ideas, ideals, and values, right? That we are going to use to change the world. What's Yoel's idea? The difference between an incident and an event. What's an incident, Daniel? Pressure. What's an incident? Yeah. It happened. Exactly. What's an event? An event. Are you asking me? You want to? You want to pass the buck? An event is like something that um, is like you have control over. It. Okay. Like if you're having a big thing, it's an event. So right. Like something significant takes place. Incident, you stub your toe. An event, something that is of great consequence. So now, let's say you stub your toe. You might think that's only an incident, it an but it could be an event. How so? Okay, you broke your toe. You went to a doctor. The doctor, the doctor's able to doctor's able to analyze this, and as a result of engaging in a conversation with you, he discovers a cure for cancer. That's an event. So what seems to be an incident could be an, could be an event, and you may not know it for 50 years down the road. There's a professor at Harvard, I forget his name now, it was in the time of 1983-84, but homocysteine, which is some, it's a chemical in your body, which really is a more accurate indicator of heart attack potential than even cholesterol. In 83-84, I read the article in the New York Times, he said this, he was laughed out of Harvard. Laughed out of Harvard. Well-known person, PhD in biology livestock. Person who I stole, Stan, she was Stanley Schwartz, said this is right. It's homocysteine, it's not cholesterol, which is the heart issue indicator, right? Now, 15 years later, we know that he, this professor at Harvard was right, Stanley Schwartz is right, and only now are we realizing that. So now, why did he come to that? Sometimes a slight chance meeting of having to, you study a person, Right? You, study, you, know, you meet people as a physician all the day long, and you make a chance connection that 20 people I just saw today all had heart attacks, and they all had elevated levels of, of this kind of chemical in your body. So you come to the conclusion. Now let's say those 20 people didn't come to visit you that, that day. You would make the connection. So too, for example, coal, what's it called, a coal Q10. Right? Famous miracle drug. Start to study some quinine. You never heard of it? It's a great supplement. It does everything. Right, coins Q10. Fantastic stuff. It happens by a chance occurrence. People realize that it's great for heart attack victims. Because they saw it, 48 patients or 400 patients, and it seems they all had diminished levels of this enzyme in your body. So therefore they say that if you had to take this stuff. Now it happens to my health letter, just reviewed it. My... UCLA Health, well, they reviewed it. They raised, it's also energized, 
it adds to your cell potential to energize, it adds to your um, everything. It's good from, from cancer all the way to heart attacks, everything. It's great. But they're saying so it shows a lot of promise in certain areas for Parkinson's. Elevated levels. You, you, somebody has Parkinson's. You give them this plus vitamin E, it slows down the neurological problems of Parkinson's. That's proven already. That's known already. That works. So it just seems to be. It's a natural-based element, quinine, and it's in our bodies. But people that have lower levels of it have more heart attacks. How'd they find that? By accident. But it really wasn't an incident. That really was an event. Now, if these 50 people each had not been to the doctor that day, and the doctor didn't notice that, he would have known about the connection between coenzyme Q10 and heart attack and that variable. So what seems to be an incident could really be a great event, and you may not even know about it. Chance incident. In the 1930s, our dear friend, welcome, dear friend, see, Kenny's here, dear friend. Harry Truman was a, fill it in, was a? Haberdasher. He sold clothes. Schmatis, right? Who was his father? Jewish. Jewish. What was his name? Jacobson. Right. Very good. Yeah, Jacobson's right. Correct. So what happens? Now, 1948, 47, November, right? This major vote's taking place at the UN, right? So now, Truman's visited. He gets all called. Now he's the president. This is 33 to 1947. A lot of strange things happen. From being a haberdasher in Missouri, all the way back to now, it's pretty nice day. So he gets a he gets a um, a call. President, yes, there's a little old man over here. His name is Jacobson. Jacobson, yeah, it's a very funny Yiddish accent, a- accent, right? So send him in, send him in. I know him for 20 years. Comes in, Harry. Hi, how are you doing? Harry, do me a favor. Am I, am I good at that? No, yeah, do, no, not good enough? Anyone want to try? Who's good? Like Wolf and that was an odd couple. <laughs> <laughs> Compliment. He used to live in my in-law's uh, apartment building. Wolf and Math Hour. The huge bed. Ten feet bed. Yeah. My wife knows it. So, Harry, I need a favor. What's the favor? What, did, what did Mr. Jackson want from Harry? What did, Harry, do me a favor. What do, what, what do you want? Vote for Israel. Okay, Harry, Jews need it. Yeah, Jews are difficult. Okay, he does. And he votes. Six minutes into the November vote, the United States approves the state of Israel. Right? I think it was six. My, my tape. Oh, watch the tape. It's on my tape. Okay, we'll put that one on hold. Right, we'll get to it. So now, it's astounding. That chance incident of the 1930s when Harry Truman was a clothes dealer led to one of the most powerful and important events of Jewish history in the 1940s, 1948. State of Israel. Astounding. So an incident could be an event. Book of Yoel. The Jews experienced a massive plague of locusts. They came to the prophet or the rabbi and they asked him, he was a prophet then, but he would be a rabbi. And they asked him, is this locust an incident or an event? What does that mean? Incident? Pay no mind. No big deal. Or is it an event, which means God wants to send a message to us. Right? Incident or event? David. You keep saying prophet slash rabbi. Yeah. I, don't, I don't buy that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't buy that. I, I would say... You don't think I'm a... <laughs> you're in good trouble. They call you Dante. You're more like the Kohen. You're the Kohen, I'm the Kohen. But you're more like you're serving the purpose more of the Kohanim. Okay. The prophets were not that. The, the prophets came and criticized the Kohanim. Correct. Right. And the Kohanim and the modern day <laughs> predecessor, uh, successor to the Kohanim came right. the, the, the rabbis. You're right. I'm using the term very loosely. But I only... Social commentators is a better term. Yeah. They, those they, are not the leaders. No. Social commentators, they're more like the editorial page. Of the right. I agree. I agree. <laughs> the rabbis certainly are that. The rabbis are what? are certainly social commentaries. Sure, every sermon you give should have an action step of trying to understand maybe, something. Maybe I'm just uh, used to the sermons that I hear. Well, wait a minute. Change shoes, because I get angry. Instead of social commentators, 
social critic might be a better Yeah, I, I buy that. Okay, good. So, but the Nevi'im are also social critics, and the rabbis today also. We point out issues. We do it gently. We do. We package it differently each week. But our basic function is to teach, and there is a great deal of social criticism that's involved in what we talk about. We want to lead by teaching. So that does, that does play a role. So I use it in that sense. Okay, let's go on. So each of these prophets, Jonah, what ideas in the, in the book of Yonah? We all know that. Yonah is about Teshuvah. You could be the most paganized human being. You could be a person that engages in that sin that brought flood to the world. Which was that? What was the famous Hamas? Very good. Hamas. And you're a pagan, and you're engaged in Hamas, and what happens? A Navi comes along and speaks five words, five words, and you change, and what happens? You're saved. Even though the Prophet was not happy. Yonah is not happy about that. And the question is, why wasn't he happy about that? He's not happy about that because he says to God, you know something, I knew you were going to do this to me. I knew you were going to change your mind, and you're going to save all these people, and they're pagans. So God says to him at the end, in the last verse, it's an extraordinary end. One second, get up. Open up this for a minute. The very last, because it's important that we look at our text. You look at the last line of Yonah. Hosea Yoel Amos Ovadiah Yonah. One second, Hosea Yoel Amos Ovadiah Yonah. It's on page 1338. His idea is to Shuvah. Yonah, Jonah. 1337. Okay. The very last line after Yonah's complaint, and he's so upset, he's so angry that he tells God, "I want to die. I want to die. I can't live with your world any longer. You have pagans that engage in Hamas that should be destroyed, and you have compassion on them." So what does God say to him? God, in the very last line, verse eleven on page thirteen thirty-seven, says, "Oh, look at verse ten. God says to him, "You were very concerned." about this bush, this plant, that you didn't do any work for, and you didn't raise, that came overnight, and, and overnight it died, that's what happened, I could see him, that's what happened in this plant, and I should not have compassion over Nineveh, this great city, this great capital city of the Assyrians, great city that has more than 120,000 people in it who don't know better. Look at this line. They are simply innocent. They're pagans. They're innocent. They're all between their right and left hand. It's not their fault. And many animals. And you want me to destroy them? That's an incredibly powerful message. So powerful. When do we read this as Hatara? On Yom Kippur. Such a powerful message of Teshuvah. A pagan engaged in Hamas which could and should bring about a flood to the world. That's in the book of Bereshit, right? Which we didn't study. That sin brings a mabul, brings a flood, they engage it, and it is a teshuvah. Now, of course, we know, this is taking us around, let's say, 727, no, 740, let's say. You're not 740, but I'm here. So what happened in 722? That very same pagan people destroy the ten northern tribes. Ashur, whose capital city is Nineveh, Mesopotamia, right? Known as Iran or Iraq today, that whole area. Iraq is Bavel. Iraq is Bavel. Iran, yeah, it could be. I mean, it's Mesopotamia. Yes. Again, it's a long stretch of land that was known as Mesopotamia, so it's Assyria, Mesopotamia, Syria, it's all that. So it's all area, yeah. So in any case, this Assyrian Empire comes along and destroys ten northern tribes. Twenty, twenty-five years later, sorry? No, twenty years later. Twenty years later, exactly. And yet here God has compassion. Because it's not their fault. It's an incredibly powerful passage. They, they don't know better. What are you yelling at them for? What do you want to destroy them for? God tells Yonah. Now, the interesting question, of course, over here is, does Yonah get the message? Here we have what we call literally intentional ambiguity. We're not told whether you're not, at the end of the day, accepts God's point. He's the man that tried to run away. I don't think so, because he wants to die. Or maybe he does not accept God's point. We don't know. It's intentional ambiguity. Why is it intentional ambiguity? The intent is that you, David Azar, should read the same exact narrative 
and question and be challenged and worry about the moral implications of what your Nas position is and what Hashem's position is. That's why it says that beginning. Right. Correct. Right. So where do you draw the line as to pagans, knowledgeable, they don't know better, etc. Yeah. Can we extrapolate from this story? I, 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 not from this particular story, but I've extrapolated, I, what do you call it, assimilated this idea that according to the Torah, every day, every minute is a new minute. Which if, you, if you messed up a minute ago, you're being judged anew. Now, you know, you have to, you shouldn't just take that as your downfall, you can, you can yeah, come right. back again. Yeah, so right, yeah, that's part of what the Shuvah idea is all about. You could always, no matter what this you've even, done. This even makes it more emphatic. Yeah. So you know that 20 years down the road, these guys are going to be horrible. You are who you are today, and you have the free will to change. You are who you are today, and even though we know what you're going to do to us, you may not do that. You have free will to change. Is that a good rabbinic concept? What oh, absolutely. That? Very powerful. It's elaborate and expanded. It is. Yeah. I have to take a minute. Oh, wow. <laughs> a few years ago, there was a movie out, and, and um, Private Ryan. Remember that movie? Did not see it. Okay, but we came in the next morning, with and, and we talked to you about it. <coughs> I didn't see the movie yet. But we no, we, we told you. Private Ryan? Private Ryan. Private Ryan. Private Ryan. Is it about? Private Ryan. Is it a war movie? Is it a war movie? Guys, see it? Yeah. That's bloody. That's bloody. It was a war movie. It was very organization of Omaha. Guys, the brothers were killed in the war. They said there's one brother left. We can't let a whole family go. Go find this guy in New York or wherever it was. Yeah. In their travels, when they were doing it, these. Uh, these guys that weren't looking to take prisoners, they were going out, out to find, American guys that were trying to find Private Ryan, they come across these Germans that, that ambushed them. Bah, 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 bah. They turned it around and they got the German guys. Now what are they going to do? Have no means to, to take them to, to, as prisoners or whatever. So they, could, so they had an argument. Should we just let them go or should we shoot them? You know, they were arguing with would they, would they be a future threat? No, 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 no. That's the no. question. So now, I don't even know that. So some of the Americans that were there, cancel the guys. They argued, no, kill us. They're going to come kill our friends. They're going to kill us. He says, no, we'll disarm them. Just let them get the heck out of here. And they disarmed them. And they, I don't know, maybe they took their shoes. Whatever they did, disarmed them, and they let them go. Sure enough, later in the movie, yeah. these, these Nazis came back and they killed the Americans and almost killed these same guys and, and whatever. Wow. And I remember, I don't remember your position. I remember we had that discussion with you. Right, correct. And, and what I answered... That they had a right to kill them. No, and, and when I gave you the example of what was in the mid-1980s when some members of Sahel had caught three terrorists who just shot up a bus and they killed them from behind. And it was a court case. They shot them in the head from behind. And it was a court case. You had no right to, to kill them. It was pretty stupid, right? So that's the question. Do you have a right to kill a prisoner of war? Yeah. Or do you want to call prisoner of war? I know what you think, yeah. yeah. It's a difficult question. Yeah, I mean, it's an impossible question. One of the guys it's an impossible question. No, but now the other guy, the American guys, let them go. The other one went back, gave him, gave a couple yeah. of cigarettes, then he shot them. One got away. It was only one that got away and then came back and killed It's a horrible, it's a horrible dilemma. It's a horrible dilemma. Okay, but in any case, Yonah does teach me about, your, about Teshuvah and about you are who you are at this moment. Right? <laughs> okay. And what else? Yeah, with me? Now, Ovadia, on the other hand, tells me about when brothers war, civil war. Isaac, Edom, and Yaakov, civil war. How should you treat your brother in wars? Apropos to what Harvey just mentioned. So each of these books over here gives me idea, idea, or idea, ideal, or value that we need to impact upon the world. And of course, I want you to remember that we raised the question, are we in fact impacting upon the world? The answer is, of course we are. Coming from a pagan society of 4,000 years ago to a near monotheistic society of 30%, which is 1.8 billion Christians, 1.2 billion Muslims, 14 million Jews, that's 3 billion out of the 6 billion people, means we have impacted upon 50% of the world, which is extraordinary in only 4,000 years. And even the other 50%, which is mainly Buddhists and Hindus, though pagans in some sense of the word, are still civilized. Nobody would consider them to be biblical pagans. Right. So, given that, we've done a great job of bringing morality and spirituality 
monotheism, all the other just said, I'm looking into the world. Right? Does anybody here know a Hindu? You? I don't know. So what kind of people are they? And civilized and good? Uh, they're good. They're good. They're good businessmen. Why am I saying? Are they moral? They're are they really honest? I don't know how honest. She's honest. Really honest. They won't even. They won't even kill a cow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they let human beings die of starvation. Yeah, That's what Right. Okay. So they're clearly not biblical pagans who have no sense of right and wrong. So. What we're learning from all this is that we have impacted with our ideas in the world. Yeah, Dave. If anybody wants to see real life Abu Dazara, <laughs> come, come fishing with me one Sunday morning in May or June. Over here in uh, Jamaica Bay. They come, I don't know what class they are, I think they're Hindu. They come and they put flowers and fruit and they pile it out on the water and they dunk themselves. It's amazing. Maybe this woman goes to make them. The men oh, and the children and the women. And the first time I said, these people are crazy. When they taking a bath in the, in the ocean? Did you people. catch any fish that day? <laughs> the fish were like a little freaked oh, out. <laughs> <laughs> they jumped into your boat. We don't want any of this stuff. We'd rather be with you than with them. Really cool. And they do it all every year. That's amazing. Right, so that's good paganism. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Good. So we have over here each of these books has an idea, ideal, or value. Good. Now remember as well that Nahum Habakkuk is another category of Navi in that that Sifanya predicts the fall of Assyria, of Ashur, because they were evil. And one of the biblical ideas that we want to impress upon the world is that God will punish evil. If you're a Nazi or you're a communist Russia, God's going to punish you. You're going to lose your empire. So, that's what Svanya enunciates. He tells everybody, Assyria shall fall. Why? Because they're evil. It's that simple. Svanya. Nahum was the person who recorded in his three or four chapters that fall of Assyria, and Habakkuk complained about it. He was miserable, angry, embittered. Why, we said? Because Habakkuk says, God, I don't understand this. You destroyed Assyria, and you put... Babel in its place. Epsha, it's worse. I don't get any doing this, God. Why don't you just make everything good the way it's supposed to be? And of course, God answers and says, You only have part of the picture. There's a much broader picture out there that you have to become familiar with. So he says, there's still going to be a time. You only look at chapter 5. From the time of Ram to you is chapter 5 chapters. There's another 500 chapters before goodness prevails. Isn't that somewhat of... It seems like a big cop-out. Story. Why? It is a story. What story? That we... The story... We don't know the answer to that. It's like... True. Okay. We don't know the answer to that. The answer that God gives to you. What's the answer? There's really... God does not give an answer to you. That goes without saying. Okay. So the answer is a revelation... No. The answer... No. It's a decision. The answer to you is the revelation of presence. Capital P. When God answers Eeyore from the world, when the presence of God is what satisfies Eeyore's question. Along the lines of the famous thing made in the Holocaust, where one of the uh, people who was being afflicted said, God, I don't need to know the answers to why I'm suffering, but only that I am suffering for your name. We can tolerate, whatever you have to tolerate, affliction, torture, illness, whatever it may be, if you know it's for a divine purpose. You may not know what the purpose is. Right? So you don't know what the person is. Assumption of. Okay, yeah, that's an assumption. But if you could at least guarantee... All that, all that does... All wait, wait, that's all EO. All that is is a mandate. It's just a sound. No, no to the no, contrary. No, no. How could you say that that having experienced it? One particular rabbi in the Bible saying that I'm willing to suffer all these tortures as long as I know it's for your name. He's saying that's meaningful to him. You think it's a Not to him. And he's the one who's suffering. And, and, what's that? And he's right. And you're wrong. <laughs> I don't think I am wrong. I know you don't think you are wrong, but you are wrong. I think it's because of further discussion. <laughs> <laughs> On the Jamaica Bay, when the flowers... <laughs> no, but I, I turn, sorry, one second. I just want to make the point that I know, because it is true that the capacity for human suffering is great. 
and it's totally denied if you're suffering meaninglessly, but it's ennobling if you could figure out the purpose. But he's not. He's well, that's for you. That's my first part. My first part of the thing. Okay. If you can figure out the purpose, or if you cannot figure the purpose, if you know that you're suffering for God's name, it's going to lead to something. You could suffer. You don't mind. You're, you're willing. We're all willing to die for our children. <coughs> you know that that where something's happened to us, and our children are going to say, "You want to do? You want to go that route?" Because we love our children, right? So we do that. Same thing. If you know that your suffering is going to lead to a greater good. You want to do that? Comes to mind the soldier two weeks ago who threw himself, the police who threw himself on the bomb in Tel Aviv, so that another four hundred people wouldn't be killed, whatever the number was. It's astounding to me. It's frightening to me. I don't think I would be able to do that. But he did it. He's willing to die for the greater good. All Israeli soldiers. So many. That, that's why. You know, okay, but in this case he that's, knew he was going to die. But that's a real, real deal. That's a visible, easily, you know. Same point. So Eyob says, God, you revealed your presence to me. It's okay. I don't have to know why my, why my children died. They died for some good reason, whatever it may be. We know what the reason is. If you tell this person... How, how can you read the beginning of that book and then tell me that? Okay, let me just put you off. And we're going to come to that book in about a few minutes or next week. Probably next week. Because the first part of Kitu, which you haven't discussed yet. I'll forget what I said. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Do not write this down. Do not have to write it down. This is going to be on. Oh, okay. Make that part. Kenny. Are you saying, it seems to be a sort of reverse thing. The Holocaust has a divine reason to it. That the people suffered, there was such great suffering, such misery. No, no, I'm not saying that. God forbid, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that's what one person who suffered said. I can absorb, I can suffer as long as I know not why. It's what he said, not me. Well, I understand it. And he's saying right. yes. He's saying yes to your question. I that if you tell me something for your name, whatever that means, and what your challenge is. But you're telling us that because you want us to believe that there was some, that there's a divine reason for that. That no, people can suffer. No, no I, I, I think he's telling us that. I think these books are telling us that so we don't give up. So we don't give up. We don't say, okay, maybe. You know, there is no point. To me, it's just grass. But okay, wait. Let, let's it, seems, it seems awfully perverse to say that God would, would, would cause the Holocaust to... to, to, to yeah, I don't think God caused the Holocaust. Well, then... Allow it to happen. Where is it the point? If you're saying the rabbi says, well, look, I can understand this, I can suffer this, if I know there's a divine purpose to this. If there's something His suffering. His suffering. His suffering. His suffering. But there, there was so much misery, so much devastation. Absolutely. Of course. And, and, why would God want something like that for? Oh, but who says He's not saying, he's just, that God did it. the reason yeah, they, but where is the purpose? You could that? use your own imagination and creativity to figure out that person's state of mind. And even figure out why this statement makes sense in his world view. I understand, but this is a combination. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's more than that. It's more than that. I think it's a psychological accommodation for somebody who's got to survive. I think it's more than that. We'll get to that later on. We'll come to you. Maybe we'll speak about that when you come to you. Okay, because we want to go on. Okay, just... Yes? Is that okay? What about this book? You just said. Habakkuk? You don't know the whole story. There's a bigger story. We can say that about everything. We can go... Okay. That's what God is saying. He's saying there's a more... Correct. That's what God... Either that, or because there is a larger picture out there. The whole world is not David A's fishing on Sunday mornings. We can put it another way. Sure. There's a, there's a larger picture over here. So God's telling Tim or Kazalam Ryan, there is a bigger picture over here. You're on chapter one. There's, wait, wait. So wait. So what we're discussing in this class is an idea. We've heard this for the fourth time already. So let's take this idea now and let's run with this idea. Which idea? We're discussing the philosophy. This one that comes out of this book. Habakkuk. So Habakkuk. Right. Okay? There's a philosophy in the Tanakh that tells us, accept anything because you don't know the bigger picture. So that's the message that the Tanakh has presented. That Habakkuk presents. But he's, he's, part, he's representative of a philo- philosophy exactly. that comes out of the Correct. Bible. Absolutely correct. So That's what God says to Habakkuk. But, but, but... On the other hand, on the other hand, you have you also have, let's say, a, a competing idea might be <clears throat> when God is challenged by, let's say, Soma Amora, 
And Abraham raised all these kinds of questions, right? So Abraham does not answer the same way, reversing the roles. Abraham, why didn't Abraham say to God, one second, God, they're evil now, but they can change. Or is the bigger picture up to their evil? I they don't know better. Because it's an absolute right and wrong that they punish. There's a different message from that story. Exactly. It's not a message so, that there is something that we can call absolute evil. That has to be or, destroyed. Or a point of no return. Right. And it can be, it can be destroyed. Yeah, it has that's to be destroyed. That's a different message uh, from that story. I agree. So my point is that Habakkuk is one philosophy that does in fact has God saying whether you like it or not, God says that there's a bigger picture out, uh, out here and there's still another vision. And that vision might be, again, we're not extensively discussing this because we do want to cover more ground, but that vision... Why, why, why can't we extensively cover this? I don't understand. Because I have a lot more on my agenda. <laughs> we could say the book Habakkuk. This is the fourth time we're doing this review of all the books. Because we had missed five, five weeks, that's why. I, we never got to philosophy. We're not talking about philosophy yet. I haven't. I haven't. I've mentioned any... numerous ideas along the way. Well, which I want to discuss that. them. I want to discuss the different. Come ideas. again next year. Then we're coming for an overview. Just one second. Let me just make one comment. This part. So part of the <coughs> overall Jewish philosophy that emerges, but it's not. It's sort of like a broad philosophical framework which I'm providing for you. Within it, it has many streams and tributaries, so that we understand. So in Habakkuk, which is one, trib- one tributary of this overall philosophy, is in fact that one should not absolutize a moment and come to any absolute conclusions about that moment. In other words, God says, Ashur is destroyed. Now Bavel is reigning. And God saying to Habakkuk, yes, it would be wonderful if goodness now reigned. If goodness were the principle upon which we build this new world order, utopia, right? But it's not here yet. Now, the question is, why not? So one, this was Kenny's challenge, one may answer and say, because you people, God wants you to do this. God wants you to take the ball and run and bring about that world order of goodness. So that's God saying over here. So now 2,000 years later, we haven't got it straight yet, obviously. Between the Iraq North Koreans, we have big problems over here, and Iranians to boot. So we haven't got it straight yet. We still ended up being more nuclear weapons to kill each other more, and we may end up doing it. Doing it. Right, sadly. So therefore, Habakkuk is a legitimate perspective. It's one tributary of this overall philosophy. Saying that it's up to you to do it, and it's not yet happening. I'm not doing what God says. I gave you the tools to build. Now go and build. But this is legal. Wait, 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 wait. Yes? Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt because you had to Alright, on something else. Um, we can put it another way about God and evil. We can say that God could eliminate evil, but not at the expense of the richness and diversity of life as we know it. Absolutely, correct. Yeah, the notion of free will would be sacrificed on the altar of eliminating evil. That's a famous philosophical defense in Jewish and non-Jewish and general philosophy. They talk about the problem of evil, they raise that as a possibility. Let God eliminate evil at the sacrifice of free will. Now you may want that. You wanted that, I think, at one point. You may be right. Maybe you really should have. I mean, that's, God, God says no. So you have a, a formidable adversary over here. Right. God says no. God says free will is too important. The Talmud expresses that notion of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is in the famous Madrasic story, which in a, a good expansion of this notion would be Berkowitz's book, Faith After the Holocaust. Uh, Eliezer. Eliezer. Yes, Eliezer. Which you should read, which elaborates a little bit on this point. And the question is there raised, which your issues are all about. And there, in quotes in the Midrash, where the angels challenge God and say to him about Rabbi Akiva, who is this great Tamid Hatam, this great rabbi, committed, dedicated. What's happening to him? He's now tortured at the Hadrianic persecutions 135 to the common era by the Romans tearing away his flesh suffering agonizingly horrifying story right so the angels say God this is the world this is what you want for the world this is appropriate the greatest man of and all good is now being tortured this way and what does God say quiet or I will revert the world back to Tovavohu back to chaos meaning what that if the world to continue as it is now, which means the Romans have free will. 
They choose us, I will not intervene, God says. Because you have to learn how to be civilized on your own. So Berkowitz quotes this Midrash to say that free, the free will defense is the price you pay for eliminating evil. Okay. Well, how do you mesh that with the idea that good is going to be rewarded and evil is going to be punished? If there's free right. will and people do have right. a choice, then how do you mesh that with a God who's going to say no, that there is absolute good and there's absolute evil and that evil is going to be punished? Okay. Okay. Right. Right. So the Gemara Amud Bet raised that question. Raised exactly that question and says, one second, there are two mitzvot in the Torah which promises long life. <coughs> one is Kansipur and one is Kiburava respecting parents. God says, these two mitzvot among, of all others guarantees you'll have long life. It is Shabbat Abiyah, one of the heroic and striking personalities of the entire Tanakh <coughs> sees a child walking with his father. Welcome, good to see you. Hi. And the father tells the child, climb up the tree, shoo away the birds, and then bring me down the eggs. And the child does exactly that, and the child falls and dies. Elisha ben Abuyah, this amazing personality, elaborating the book called As a Driven Leaf by Mutu Steinberg, which something that, again, it's must reading for a literate Jew. It's a wonderful book of the story, a period in its personality. Shabbat Abu Yah was one of the great Kabbalistic rabbis who entered into that world of paradise, Pardes, and he sees this and decides, let deem the let dayan, there is no judge and there is no justice in the world. Because the child did a tumus void, respected his parents, and shoot away the birds, and he dies. Where is the arichut yamim? Where is the length of days? So Rabbi Yaakov, at that particular point, says, Indeed, it's not of this world, but Alam Habab is the, answer, the rabbinic answer to that question. So God guarantees at the end that there will be great reward for those who follow a path of absolute justice and absolute good. And that's the rabbinic answer to that question. Another From your point of view. The other guy left Judaism, right? The Shemite left Judaism, correct. He didn't cop out. He made he made a this world a this worldly choice. But it might but it might be the wrong choice. Huh? It might be the wrong choice. But the other one is no choice. <coughs> oh, we don't know. It's the that's a choice. Mean, it's not a choice. So, so the, okay, that's that's it's a, a non choice. That's something that you will decide on your personal family basis. You will teach your kids to be pagans, <laughs> which is that's the other choice. Okay. Okay. Or you may choose. You may choose. One, week, them. one week we're pagans. One week. I, I'm aware. I'm on. <laughs> I know what we're going on right now. Next week we have meeting on Tuesday night because I want to go on non pagan week. Who's he deal with? So, but that's the answer. What do you want to create your world philosophy out of? Paganism is... So you're saying that, that we're, given, we're given these different philosophies and we can struggle with them? And yeah, that's part of it. And ultimately, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And absolutely, at the end of the line, you'll know the truth. At the end of the line, you, in 120 years, you and I will know the truth. Your truth or your truth? The, well, it may be a relative truth. I don't know. But at the end of the day, you will either be right or I'm right. And one of us is going up, one of us is going down. We're going to meet the same place. Right, right, right. Hopefully, I don't know how that's going to work, but maybe that's what they do say. Okay, next point. So all of these books, are the three books which discuss Assyrian destruction. Finally, last, the last three books of the Prophet, right? They took about what does Judaism do in a post-exilic context. Post-exilic. At the Horban. The Horban, 70 after the common era, uh, 586, destroyed the notion of idolatry in the Jewish people. There's no longer any idolatry, no longer any paganism. The Jews got the message in 586 by the Babylonians that that is a non-starter for the Jewish religion. So therefore... Now, these prophets are on a completely different page trying to now teach what do we do without a temple? How do we live our Jewish lives? 
And therefore, Malachi ends with 450 before the common era with that question. Right? And of course, his last line that we began with is what? Tikkun Olam. I'm going to send you, Eliyahu Navi, before the great day of judgment. And we either get the message. What's the message? That the generation gap, social harmony within families and beyond, either get it straight or I destroy it all. You have to get that message, is what Malachi talks about. The last line of the last chapter of his book. Right? So, that's Malachi. For his before the common hero, he ends that. Now, as we enter the book of Ketuvim, we have a whole new different set of writings. Right? Whereas, Nebuah is from God down to these people, Ketuvim is exactly the opposite way. Right? We use the term theocentric. Right? And homeocentric. You might call this homeocentric, which goes down this way, where people are the center of God's attention. Theocentric is where God plays the role in our thoughts going up. Everyone in the book of Tzim is about God in one sense or another. Right? So that's the book of Ketuvim. The third of the, what's known as Tanakh, which is Torah, Nebihim, and Ketuvim. So your Bible is known as Tanakh, has the five books of Moses, 19 books of the prophets, and these last 11 books are about the writings, holy writings, spiritual writings, all about God going in this direction. That's where our prayers come from, Ketuvim, not from, mainly not from, Nevi, from the other Nevi'im. That's the line here and line there. That's all clear, right? Okay? Now, well, we, again, we want to start with next week. Hopefully, we will start with no review, period, with the book of Tehillim. Tehillim. I'd like you to look for homework. Chapter 22 from Tehillim. Right? Which is one of the most famous of chapters. Right? And you also would like to like you to look at another chapter, which is chapter 8. 8.22 of Tehillim. Right? Chapter 8. Yeah, eight chapter 8 of Tehillim. We're going to look at it closely. Chapter 22 we're going to look at closely. And also chapter... Three. Three and twenty-two. And the idea here would be to understand the emotions, the feelings of David HaMelech as he records these religious feelings. What went on in his life? What went on in his life that spurred him to write these poetic creations? You have to figure that out. Each one of these chapters evoke a certain emotion. We want you to figure that out. Okay? We'll stop with this now, hopefully, and start the source in two minutes. Don't forget the honor.